Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Daily Dose on The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss, and as always, I want to begin by saying thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me for a little while. Today is Wednesday, November 16th, and the great year of 2022 is impossible in my mind to fathom that we are now more than halfway through the month of November, and just in another week or so, we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving absolutely unbelievable how fast this year 2022 has gone by and not to mention shortly after thanksgiving is done we are moving right into the thick of celebrating the december holidays for those who celebrate hanukkah or those who celebrate uh, Kwanzaa or those who celebrate Christmas. Uh, so December is going to be just like November, another very busy month, one that moves very quickly. And then, of course, as we all know, the end of the new year on the 31st and all of our resolutions that get made and held on to for the first 24 to 48 hours of the new year. And then we revert back to the way we've always done things. Well, anyways, let's get into this daily dose. So with all the cases that I have been asked to work on in 2022, and believe it or not, on the 15th day of November, which was yesterday, I was contacted by a new law firm asking if I would engage in a litigation that is going on with multiple commercial insurance companies against the hospital network. And it was an interesting conversation, and as things progress, I'll keep you all posted, but I have a feeling this is going to be one that makes a lot of headlines, and that's something that I am having to take into serious consideration. But with all of these cases, one of the very first questions that gets asked of me by Attorneys who I've never worked with before is, have you ever had a Daubert motion filed against you? And, of course, you know, Daubert is a very specific type of motion in limine. Um, I have had um, a motion in limine on a specific aspect of testimony filed against me in a case or motioned against me in a case. Um, but it was refused by the court. But it got me thinking. 2022 has been such an incredible year for civil and criminal cases that I thought I would spend just a few minutes talking about what a Daubert motion is, where it came from, 
and why it's so important to attorneys. Because I know a lot of you that listen to this podcast are subject matter experts. Some of you are already testifying experts. Some of you are aspiring to become uh, testifying experts. And as such, I thought that I would share with you my experiences with Daubert and what you need to understand to successfully avoid having a Daubert motion filed against you. One of the easiest ways to bypass a Daubert is to have an expert report created because your expert report gets presented to opposing counsel and it allows them to see the depth of knowledge and the breadth of experience that you as a subject matter expert in this particular area or areas possesses. It gives you an opportunity to talk about your qualifications, your um, assessment of the case, an assessment of the documents that have been provided to you. And it is a key in helping to thwart or to compel opposing counsel not to file a Daubert motion unless your report is just so reckless that, you know, you you hang yourself out like a pinata for a beating. So, again, Daubert, and I'm not talking about the cartoon character Dilbert. Don't get them confused. Daubert motions are named for the Supreme Court case, which is Daubert v. Merrill Dow Farm, uh, Pharma, uh, Inc. And you can find this at 509 U.S. 579, and it's from the year 1993. And although Daubert is the standard that's followed by federal courts, there are some states that still adhere to what's referred to as the general acceptance standard, which was actually set out in Fry v. United States. And if you're interested, um, this is the D.C. Circuit, um, uh, D.C. Circa 1923, and you can find it at 293F, 1013, and 1014. And you can also look at something called the standard for excluding expert testimony. There's actually a 50-state survey on this. Now, as I said, Daubert is a motion that results from an outcome of a 1993 Supreme Court case. And you have what are referred to as rules, 702 and 703 of the federal rules of evidence that govern the admission of scientific evidence in federal court. Now, the rule itself allows expert witnesses significant leniency in their testimony because it's presumed that an expert 
is going to have a reliable basis in knowledge and expertise in their particular field. So, for example, if you are a coder, you are going to possess very specific skills in CPT, ICD, and HICPICS coding. You're going to be able to opine on what it means to abstract information from a physician's medical record. If you're an auditor, you're going to have very specific training and knowledge in the areas of rules of documentation, impact of medical coverage policies, local coverage determinations, national coverage guidelines, regulatory rules, compliance requirements. And that is why the rules allow experts or expert witnesses a greater leniency in their testimony. Now, in Daubert, the court required that trial judges function as a gatekeeper. And as a gatekeeper, they have to determine the validity in the cases of scientific information. They have to consider the validity of that information prior to it being admitted. Now, the guidelines in the decision has been expanded to include technical as well as specialized knowledge that an individual possesses. Prior to their testimony. Now, the testimony of an expert witness has to pass two tests in order for a judge to accept them as a witness. The first is pretty straightforward, right? It's reliability. So they look at things like empirical testing, the theory or the technique has to be falsifiable, refutable, testable. It has to be subjected to peer review and publication. There has to be known or potential error rates. They also look at whether there are standards controlling the techniques operations. What are the experts' qualifications, which is so critical in a report for you to make sure that you do not overstate or overinflate your credentials, the things that you have worked on, what makes you the person that should be sitting in that witness box being direct examined or cross-examined. Your expertise, your qualifications as an expert are probably, at least in my mind, one of the most critical aspects of a report in trying to avoid in trying to avoid a Daubert motion being filed against you. And then the last under the reliability are the technique and its results that have to describe what the 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 findings are in plain speak, in plain English. The second test 
for a judge to consider is the relevancy. So how relevant is the testimony? You know, the, the, rele- the relevancy of a testimony becomes subject to the type of question. So the expert witness cannot be used to tell the jury that the defendant was crazy or they were, you know, stupid because they ignored the rules. That's not how an expert opinion has to be leveled or provided. You have to be able to convey your message in such a way as to, for example, saying, given the fact that there is a wide discrepancy from Medicare administrative contractor to Medicare administrative contractor with respect to local coverage determinations, as outlined in a 2014 OIG study that specifically explained their concerns to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And as a result of the inconsistencies in these LCDs, providers are left bewildered. They're left confused because one Mac says you can do it this way, as opposed to another Mac saying you can't do it that way. So again, that's when a judge acts as a gatekeeper to rule out bad testimony. I've been in cases where an expert has literally said, well, you can't do it that way because that's just the way, you know, it's just not done that way in healthcare. You know, we do it this way. And when they're, they're cross-examined, they say, well, because that's the way we've always done it. And they don't cite to any specific regulation. They don't cite to any specific medical coverage policy or local coverage determination or national coverage determination or statute or act or law. And that's why judges have to act as a gatekeeper to rule out bad testimony. So after the decision was handed out in Daubert, Rule 702 was actually amended to include the additional provisions which state that a witness may only testify if the testimony is based upon sufficient facts or data. The testimony is the product of reliable principles and methods, and the witness has applied the principles and methods reliably to the facts of the case. Now, Daubert motions typically are filed within a reasonable period of time after the close of what is referred to as discovery. This is where counsel exchanges all of the information that they have with each other so that they can prepare for deposition, they can prepare for trial, and 
if there's going to be a Daubert motion, the hearing for that motion needs to be made well in advance of the very first time a case appears on a trial calendar. Because once certain evidence is excluded by a Daubert motion because it fails to meet the Daubert standard, it becomes highly unlikely that it will ever be used again in another trial. Remember, even though Daubert is, even though a Daubert motion is not binding to other courts of law, if there is evidence that was found to be lacking, a lot of other judges are going to follow that precedent. So that's my. 15 minutes on Daubert. Again, if you're interested in learning more about Daubert and how the Supreme Court case of Daubert v. Merrill Dow Pharma, Inc., uh, uh, you know, played out, you can look at 509 U.S. 579, and it's 1993. All right, that's going to bring me to the end of this Daily Dose. I hope you enjoyed this quick down and dirty explanation of Daubert motions and what you as an expert need to do to ensure that a Daubert motion is not filed against you. All right. As always, thank you so much for hanging out with me for just a little while. I'll be back tomorrow with another daily dose, but until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.